Chapter 6 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Ficklin. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Cable Chatterton. Chapter 6 Galleys and Gallantry. But there was a third great barbarian corsair to complete this terrible trio. Urouge and Caradine, we have known. There is yet to be mentioned Dragut, who succeeded to the latter. He too was a Muslim who had been born in a coast village of Asia Minor, opposite the island of Rhodes. His early life is that of most pirates. He went to sea when quite young, was devoted to his profession, was filled with ambition, became an expert pilot, and later became a skipper of his own craft. Then, feeling the call of the wild, he devoted himself to piracy, and rose to notoriety. But the turning point in his career came when he joined himself to the service of Caradine who appointed Dragut to the entire command of a dozen of the Corsair King's galleys. Henceforward his life was that of his master, ravaging the Italian coast, pillaging Mediterranean ships, and dragging thousands of lives away into slavery. Two years after the Battle of Prevesa, Dragut was in fame second only to Caradine, and another Doria, the nephew of Andrea, was sent forth to capture this new wasp of the sea. Doria succeeded in throwing his net so well that off the Corsican coast he was able to bring back Dragut as prisoner, and for the next four years the ex-corsair was condemned to row as a slave in a Christian galley, until on a day his late master Caradine came sailing into Genoa. During his active pillaging life he had obtained plenty of riches, so it was nothing for him to pay three thousand ducats and thus redeem from slavery a man who had been particularly useful to his own schemes. And from this day until Dragut fell fighting in 1565, he followed in the footsteps of the man who brought him his release. When Caradine died, the Turkish sultan appointed Dragut as admiral of the Ottoman fleet, like Barbarossa, Dragut's first object was to obtain a base in northern Africa, and eventually he was able to capture the town of Africa, or Mahidia, to the east of Tunis. His next proceeding was to fortify this place. The news came to the ears of Charles V that this had happened. The two Barbarossas were dead, but there was another almost as pernicious. Was this pestilence of piracy never to cease? Andrea Dori was an old man now, but he was bidden by Charles to go after Dragut, and he went nor was he sorry for an opportunity of wiping out his own undistinguished action at Prevesa. Dragut was always harrying the coast of Spain, and his nephew Aiza was left in charge of Africa. Meanwhile, Doria searched for him along the African coast, came to Africa, but after losing some men and with great damage to his own ship, Doria, as the season was getting late, returned home. But the following June, Doria, with his fleet arrived off Mahidia, seized the city, and, after an expenditure of great effort, took it, capturing Aiza. Mehedia was lost, but Dragut was still at large. He repaired to Constantinople, and thence to Jerba, the island off the east coast of Tunis. Hither also came Andrea Doria, and him the Corsair in. At last the pirate was in a trap, but like many another clever rascal he found a way out with consummate cleverness. What he did may briefly be summed up as follows. Outside were the waiting Christian fleet, which was merely amused by the sight of a new fort becoming daily greater. But these earthworks were just so much bluff. For Dragut, by means of these was able to conceal what was being done on the other side. With marvelous ingenuity, he had caused a road to be made across the island to the sea on the other side. He had laid down a surface of well-greased planks, and under the further cover of darkness had made his men drag his galleys across until they were launched into the sea on the opposite coast. The rest was easy, and the Corsair fleet once more escaped, having fooled Doria in a manner that amazed him. To add impudence to insult, Dragut at once captured a Sicilian galley on its way to Doria, containing Muley Hassan, Sultan of Tunis. The latter was promptly sent as a present to the Sultan of Turkey, who allowed him to end his days in prison. Of the rest of the acts of this corsair, we have but little space to speak. 
It is sufficient if we say that he well bore the mantle which had fallen to him from the shoulders of Barbarossa. He continued his scourging of the seas. He fought gallantly. He laid waste and he captured prisoners for slavery. Power and dominion came to him as his predecessors, and before long he was the ruler of Tripoli, and more than ever the enemy of the Christian race. Finally he died at the siege of Malta, but he in turn was succeeded by Ali Basha of Algiers, who conquered the kingdom of Tunis, captured Maltese galleys, and showed that the old corsair spirit was still alive. But the day of reckoning was at hand, and there was to be settled in one of the most momentous events of history a death that had been long owing to the Christians. Of all the decisive battles of the world, few stand out more conspicuously than the Battle of Lepanto. In spite of all the great maritime expeditions which had been sent to put down piracy in the Mediterranean, the evil had recurred again and again. There were two reasons why Christian Europe was determined to beat these corsairs. Firstly, the latter were natural enemies because they were Muslims, but secondly, they were the worst type of pirates. All the losses of Christian lives, goods, and ships merely increased the natural hatred of these Mohammedans. And in Lepanto we see the last great contest in which these truculent corsairs fought as a mighty force. Thereafter there were repeated piratical attacks by these men, but they of a more individualistic nature than proceeding from an enormous organization. Lepanto was fought sixteen years before the Elizabethans defeated the Armada. Before we say anything of the contest itself, it is necessary to remind the reader that whereas in this contest it took place in the waters that wash England, the bulk of the ships were sail-propelled, and had high freeboard with some exceptions. Yet, at Lepanto, it was the reverse. The fighting ships of the Mediterranean from the very earliest times had always been the galley type, even though it contained variations of species. And never was this characteristic more clearly manifested than at the battle of which we are now to speak. There were galleys and galleasses, but though the former were certainly somewhat big craft, yet the latter were practically only big additions of the galley. The value of Lepanto is twofold. It proved to the world that the great Ottoman Empire was not invincible on sea. It showed also that in spite of all that the cleverest corsair seamen could do, there were sufficient unity and seamen-like ability in Christian Europe to defeat the combined efforts of organized piracy and Mohammedanism. No one can deny that Ali Basha distinguished himself as a fine admiral at this battle, yet he was not on the side of victory. When he found himself defeated, there fell simultaneously the greatest blow which organized piracy had received since it established itself along the southern shores of the Mediterranean. Lepanto was no mere isolated event. It was the logical outcome of the conflict between Christianity on one hand, and Mohammedanism with piracy on the other. It is as unfair to omit the consideration of Muslimism from the cause of this battle as it were to leave out the fact of piracy. The solidarity of the Christian expedition was formed by what was called the Holy League, embracing the ships of the Papal States, Spain, and Venice. The unity of the opposing side was ensured by the fidelity of the barbarian corsairs to the Sultan of Turkey, and the supreme command of the former was Don John of Austria, son of that Charles V who had done so much to oust these corsair wasps. The Christian fleet numbered about 300, of which two-thirds were galleys, and they were collected at Messina. The scene where the battle was to take place was already historic. It was practically identical with that of Preveza, of which we have already spoken, and with that of the classical Actium in 31 BC, though exactly it was a little to the south of where Preveza had been fought. Just as in the latter Caradine had fought against Andrea Doria, so now Dragut was to fight against John Andrea Doria. The Muslim strength may be gauged from the statement that it contained 250 galleys, plus a number of smaller ships. But just as Preveza had been marked by little fighting but much maneuvering, so Lepanto was distinguished by an absence of strategy and a prevalence of desperate, hard-hitting. Whatever strategy was displayed belonged to Ali Basha. The galleasses of the Christian side dealt wholesale death into the Muslims, though Andrea's own flagship suffered severely in the fight. Spanish, Venetian, and Maltese galleys fought most gallantly, but Ali Basha, after capturing the chief of the Maltese craft, was obliged to relinquish towing her, 
and himself compelled to escape from the battle. At least 5,000 Christians perished at Lepanto, but six times that amount were slaughtered of the Muslims, together with 200 of the latter's ships. The Corsairs had rendered the finest assistance, but they failed with distinction. Christian craft had won the great day, and never since that autumn day in 1571 have the pirates of Barbary attained to their previous dominion and organized power. Ali returned to Constantinople, and even the next year was again anxious to fight his late enemies, though no actual fighting took place. Still another year later, Tunis was taken from the Turks by Don John of Austria. For nine years after the event of Lepanto, Ali Basha lived on, and like his predecessor, spent much of his time harrying the Christian coastline of southern Italy. There were many pirates for long years after his death, but with the decease of Ali Basha closed the grand period of the Muslim corsairs. It had been a century marked by the most amazing impotence on the part of the self-made kings and tyrants. But if it showed nothing else, it made perfectly clear what enormous possibilities the sea offered to any man who had enough daring and self-confidence in addition to that essential quality of sea sense. From mere common sailormen, these four great corsairs, the two Barbarossas, Dragut, and Ali Basha, rose to the position of autocrats and admirals. Mere robbers and bandits though they were, yet the very mention of their names sent a shudder through Christendom, and it was only the repeated and supreme efforts of the great European powers which could reduce these pirate kings into such a condition that honest ships could pursue their voyages with any hope of reaching their destined ports. Surely, in the whole history of lawlessness, there were never malefactors that prospered for so long and to such an extent. We have spoken in this chapter of galleys and galleuses. Before we close, let us add a few words of explanation to facilitate the reader's vision. Bearing in mind the interesting survival of the galley type throughout Mediterranean warfare, it must not be forgotten that in detail this type of craft varied in subsequent centuries. There remained, however, the prevailing fact that she relied primarily on oars, and that she drew comparatively little water and had but little freeboard in proportion to the caravels, caracks, and ocean-going ships of war and commerce. The great virtue of the galley consisted in her mobility. Her greatest defect lay in her lack of sea-keeping qualities. For the galley's work was concerned with operations within a limited sphere, with the land not far away. In other words, she was suited for conditions of the exact opposite of that kind of craft which could sail to the West Indies, or go round Cape Horn. The amazing feature of these galleys was the large number of oarmen required, but this was an age when human life was regarded more cheaply than today. Slaves could be had by raiding towns or capturing ships. The work of pulling at the oar was healthy, if terribly hard. A minimum of food and the stern lash of the bosun, as he walked up and down the gangway that ran fore and aft down the center of the ship, kept the men at their duty and their shackles forbid them from deserting. But when their poor, wearied bodies became weak, they were thrown overboard before their last breath had left them. The prints, which are still in existence, show that the number of oarsmen in the 16th century galley ran into the hundreds. Two or three hundred of these galley slaves would be no rare occurrence in one craft. They retained the beak and the arrangement of the yards from the times of the Romans. At the stern sat the commander with his officers. When these craft carried cannon, the armament was placed in the bows. By the 16th, or at any rate the 17th century, the galley had reached her climax, and it was not thought remarkable that her length should be about 170 feet, and her breadth only about 20 feet. She may be easily studied by the reader on referring to an accompanying illustration. Whether used by Christian or Corsair, by Maltese knights or Muslim Turks, they were not very different from the picture which is here presented. With five men to each heavy oar, with seamen to handle the sails when employed, with soldiers to fight the ship, she was practically a curious kind of raft or floating platform. Irrespective of religion or race, it was customary for the 16th century nations to condemn their prisoners to row chain to these benches. Thus, for example, when the Spaniards captured Elizabethan seamen, the latter were thus employed, just as Venetian prisoners were made to row in Muslim galleys. Convicted criminals were also punished by this means. The difference between the old and new was never better seen than in the late 16th century, 
when the big-bellied man-of-war with sails and guns were beginning to discard the old boarding tactics. It was the gun, and not the sword, on which they were now relying. But the galley was dependent less on her gunnery than on boarding. It was her aim to fight not at a distance, but at close quarters, to get right alongside and then pour her soldiers onto the other ship and obtain possession. The galleus of the Mediterranean, although the word was somewhat largely used, signified an attempt to combine the sea qualities of the big-bellied ship with the mobility of the galley. Compromises are, however, but rarely successful, and though the galleus was a much more potent fighting unit, yet she was less mobile, if a better sea craft. She began by being practically a big galley with a forecastle and stern castle and another deck. She ended in being little less clumsy than the contemporary ship of the line which relied on sails and guns. Anyone who cares to examine the contemporary pictures of the Spanish galleasses used by the Armada against England in the reign of Elizabeth can see this for himself. It is true that even as far north as Amsterdam in the 17th century the galley was employed, and there are many instances when she fought English ships in the Channel, off Portsmouth and elsewhere. For a time some lingered on in the British Navy, but they were totally unsuited for the waters of the North Sea and the English Channel, and gave way to the sail-propelled ships of larger displacement. End of chapter 6 Recording by Dan Ficklin.